Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. Uh, before we move any further, we do want to go ahead and dismiss our preschool children. So uh, y'all can follow Mr. Miles and Miss Diana out. K-5 and up get to stay in here with us today because uh, uh, about half or two-thirds of our, of our um, elementary school kids are away at camp this morning. But we do want to do that. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of John chapter 1. Let me give you a couple of announcements as, as you're getting there. First, I want to remind all of you, we do have a funeral this afternoon at 2 o'clock for Miss Nancy Simmons. So I know that many of you will want to be here today to support um, the Simmons family for David and Mary and Opal as, uh, as we reflect upon a life well lived and unexpectedly taken. So uh, please plan to be here at 2 o'clock this afternoon for that service. Also in your bulletin you'll see there is a drop in at, at uh, the Thompson home tomorrow evening um, with uh, sponsored by our staff so we hope that you'll Drop in, uh, don't stay, but drop, I'm just kidding, uh, drop by, we'd love to see you, um, and uh, then this Wednesday night, we are doing our annual caroling at Steeplechase Apartments, so um, we, for those of you that have never been a part of that, we try and get in um, at Steeplechase Apartments, uh, sing some Christmas carols, attempt to share the love of Jesus with those the residents in that community. So I hope that you'll be there with us. Uh, one really good praise last Sunday afternoon. We had a really wonderful turnout for our outreach here in our community. We knocked um, on 200, 220 doors last Sunday afternoon and just offered to pray with folks, uh, attempt to share the gospel with them. So uh, uh, just a great job by showing up and getting out there and doing that. I've received a couple of communications in the community this week from folks that have been impacted by you. So, uh, well done, and thank you for your work. All right, by now, you've made it hopefully to the book of John. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, you want to get to the New Testament, and you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. It's the fourth of what we call the Gospels. These are the, the biographical, sort of biographical accounts of Jesus. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we refer to as um, the synoptic Gospels because they sort of tell the same story from a different angle. Uh, John is very unique. He still tells the same story, the story of Jesus, but John tells it in a very different way. And we really see that being kicked off this morning in John chapter 1 as John gives us sort of the behind-the-scenes look at what it is, not only the creation, but once we get to where we are, the behind-the-scenes look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, um, hopefully you've turned there. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This, is he, or this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this word would come alive this morning. That the Holy Spirit of God would move among us. That, Father, we would see the rest of the story of Christmas. That, God, we would be granted revelation, relationship, and rest. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have become a real dork in my later life. I don't know how it happened. Uh, it's true. Y'all can all mock me. I don't care. I'm very nerdy. It's, uh, 
um, and, and you know that you've reached super nerd level. Like, like I, I have a lot of books. Y'all know I love to read. Um, I, and and I, I, I read for both pleasure and for work. So I read half my day here to get ready for a sermon. Then I go home and I read some more because I'm just, I'm that level of nerdiness, okay? Uh, and I read anything and everything I can find. I read the newspaper. I still get a paper copy of the newspaper. And then I, I'm dorky enough to sit down at night and work the little word jumbles and do all the things with the paper. The only bad thing is I leave them stacked up all over the place, all over the house. Um, I, I do that. But but there's 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 like levels of nerdiness, okay? And I I, I just I, I acknowledge it. So there's the level of those of you that, that maybe just read and people judge you for being a reader. And so maybe you just read like little murder mysteries or whatever. Um, and then there's uh, maybe those of you that just don't consume your news from, from an electronic media source. And, and you get the newspaper, perhaps you read magazines and things like that. Maybe that's another level. I'm not talking about like little fancy frilly magazines like Garden and Gun or Southern Home. I'm talking about something like, you know, legitimate that actually has articles and stuff. And then there's those of you like me that enjoy nonfiction reading. That's a whole other level, okay? Um, but then there's me, and I, I just I want to acknowledge it. There's me, and my favorite book on planet Earth is a book about a book. Y'all see how that happened there? When you start reading books about books and books about writing books, and when I tell you what this book's about, you're going to think even less of me because it's not just a book about a book. It's a book about a dictionary. My favorite book on planet Earth is a book about a dictionary. It's a book about... Y'all, I don't know, there's these weird looks that y'all are giving me right now. Um, it's a book about the Oxford English Dictionary. Okay, um, Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, stick with me, don't tune me out, okay? Don't. The Oxford English Dictionary is the most authoritative English dictionary in the world. And it has been since its inception. However, the background behind the dictionary is not what you would expect. Before the dictionary could ever see the light of day, an incredible amount of work had to be done. The goal of the dictionary was profound. Not only did they hope to define every word in the English language, they desired as well to trace the etymology, that is the history of each word, all the way back to its original language, its language of origin, all the way back for every single word. Today, the dictionary is available in electronic format, but many of you may have had access to the printed edition in school but not if you're real old. The 1989 print edition was printed in 20 volumes comprising 291,500 entries, 21,730 pages. The longest entry was for the verb set, S-E-T, which required 60,000 words to describe 430 senses. Some of y'all could at least like do this. <gasps> Folks, this is amazing information. Stop it. Hush. Quit mocking me. You've seen the book. You may have even had the opportunity to cart it around on a hand truck. You likely do not know the behind-the-scenes story, though. It's a riveting story, and it's been chronicled by a man named Simon Winchester. He's actually written two books on the history of the Oxford English Dictionary. One of them is my favorite book on planet Earth. It's called The Professor and the Madman. At least that's what it's called printed in the United States. It's actually called something else when it was printed in Great Britain. I don't remember the name. Now, that book has been made into a movie, so if you don't want to read the book, you can actually see the movie with Mel Gibson and Sean Penn. And if you think I'm just a huge dork, Angel enjoyed the movie too. The dictionary began as a project among a group of super nerds 
and scholars known as, you ready for this, the Philological Society. See, all of you want to be a part of that. Behind the scenes, the work for the Oxford English Dictionary was begun in 1857. Now listen, the first volume, which only included words that began with A and B, wasn't published until 1888. 31 years after the idea first began to become a reality, the first, two vo- the first volume was published. Volume C came out in 1893, that's five years later, and the entire dictionary in ten volumes was not available until 1928. That's over 70 years that it took to print the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. But if you walk into a library today and they have maybe the 1989 version because nobody's buying this anymore, you understand, because it's all electronic. The 1989 version would have, as we just mentioned, 20 volumes comprising 291,500 entries and 21,730 pages. And you would see 20 hardback books. Or perhaps you might run to a website or a search engine and type in the word set and see over 60,000 words returned. But you know what you would not see is the rest of the Oxford English Dictionary story. Because we only get this, this side of the story. We get the reader's side. But on the back side, on the editor and publisher's side, there is much more to the story. This is the Paul Harvey edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. And when it comes to the Bible story, John 1 represents the rest of that story. When we walk into Genesis chapter 1 and we see that God spoke the world into being, it's only in John 1, 1 that we get God's version, God's side of things, and the way things must have looked from heaven, when the very Word of God that dwelt for all of eternity was the creative force behind God's speech. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And where was this Word of God? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This word of God that was with him from the very beginning is the heavenly side of the spiritual of the creation of the world that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, but it's not just that we start or we don't we don't just stop there in John chapter 1 because John doesn't just give us the other side or the rest of the story of creation. We move on down to John 1:14 and see the rest of the Christmas story. The shepherds saw a baby in a manger, and Mary Joseph heard his cries. But from heaven, the scene was entirely different. From heaven's perspective, we see the Son of God become a Son of Man to bring about salvation for all of humanity who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we encounter the Word of God, and that's what we do. We don't just read the Word of God. We encounter the Word of God. It's living and active. As we encounter the Word of God this morning, I want to know, This, what can you receive from God's presence? P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, presence. What can you receive from God's presence? The first thing we see in John chapter 1 is that you can receive the gift of revelation. The Bible says that the Word became 
flesh. The logos is the Greek word there. Now, while in Greek cultures, logos normally referred to logic or reason or perhaps even a divine spark, we, we see this idea of logos that comes about through Gnostic religions being re, um, re, uh, recycled in New Age mysticism and in some of the other sort of Oprah religions that are popping up across our world today, this idea that within you is the divine spark that you need only to, to sort of tap into, and there within you you can find what you're looking for. Biblically, logos doesn't, doesn't denote this divine spark within us. It is something that is outside of us. It is the very living and active Word of God. In the Old Testament, the Logos, the Word of God, is powerful and creative. It is through His words that God spoke the world into creation. So in Isaiah 48, we read that the Word of God is eternal. As He tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. The Word of God is effectual. In Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But is that... Uh, but is that it will accomplish that for which I purpose it and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. The Word of God is also personal. God directly communicated with His prophets. They didn't hear from an intermediary. God spoke to them. The Word of God is judgmental as in His curses spoken to Adam and Eve and to the serpent in the garden. The Word of God brings judgment. The Word of God is also encouraging as in his message to Elijah. Now what's incredible is there in his message to Elijah, the word of God is at the same time critiquing and encouraging, isn't it? Elijah says, God, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. God knocks him down a notch and then God says, but there's 700 others. In each of these aspects, the word of God is revealing something. It is revealing something. It is revealing God's love or God's judgment or God's power or God's eternal nature. In the incarnation, that is, I use that word a lot. The incarnation, that's sort of the theological term to speak about Jesus coming to earth as a child. He is the, the, the word of God, that, that God is incarnated in flesh, that he comes to life on earth. So that's just sort of a, a, a theological term for Jesus' arrival at Christmas. In the incarnation, we receive the gift of God's revelation. The Word of God has taken on flesh. No longer is the Word printed on a page for us to understand or even spoken into our ears. The Word is personified in the person of Jesus. I'm out of breath, so that suggests to me that I might need to take a deep breath and slow down. The Word of God is personified... In the person of Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God. Do you want to know what God's word is like? I would encourage you to study. I would encourage you to know it well. But can I tell you that you don't have to get a PhD in Bible to know what the word of God is like. You need only look to Jesus. For he is the word of God made flesh. He is the word of God made flesh. How do I know that the Word of God represents God's love? Because I look at Jesus. He laid down his life for his friends. How do I know that the Word of God is wise? Because I read Jesus and I hear him speak. And I know that he is teaching. And I know that he is the personified Word of God made flesh. 
is the Word of God judgmental? You better believe it because Jesus, the very personification of the Word of God, actually spoke words of judgment and even condemnation towards those who resisted His teachings. Love letters are a wonderful way for lovers to communicate over dis- That's the bad thing about the electronic age. When's the la- sh- We've got to be careful. This. Um, I was going to say, when's the last time you got a love letter? But most of you probably just need to keep your hand in your pocket. Um, because you're married, see what I'm saying? Um, but, uh, but one of the bad things about the electronic age, one of the good things is that I can regularly send Angela a text message and let her know how wonderful she is. One of the bad things is that we never get a, a letter in the mail that just says how much somebody loves us. We never actually take the time to write down in long form. I, I actually got a thank you note from somebody a few weeks ago and it was wonderful. It was, it was, it was one of y'all, somebody actually on the way out the door, just hand me a card, and it was like front and back. Somebody had actually taken a lot of time to put thought into the thing that was said to me, and it just meant so much. It wasn't just a text message when it came to mind. Somebody sat down, they took the time to take a card out of a package to write all over it in blue ink to sign their name, to put it inside an envelope, to lick that nasty envelope, to seal it shut, to write my name on the front, and then to find me on a Sunday morning and hand this to me and say, I wanted you to have this. Man, that meant something to me. But when's the last time you can remember somebody writing you a letter? Especially somebody that you love writing you a letter. I still have a letter that my grandma wrote to me years ago. It's in a drawer at home. I know where it is. I don't pull it out often, but occasionally I pull it out and I just read it. It's in her terrible, scratchy handwriting. But in it, she speaks of praying for me, of loving me, and it just means so much. But you know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean near as much as me having known my grandma. You see, love letters are great when we can't get to somebody, but love letters sort of pale in comparison to the presence of the people that we love. If God's Word, if the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's love letter to us, understand that Jesus is the personification of that love letter. Jesus is the fulfillment of that letter. He's everything that it promised. Mark Dever wrote uh, two books on the Old Testament and the New Testament. He called the one on the Old Testament, uh, he called it Promises Made. And on the New Testament, he called it Promises Kept. Can I let you know today that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's promises? And we can know that the New Testament is the key, is the, it represents the kept promises of God because Jesus actually came. He did what God said he was going to do. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every single word of God that has been spoken In Christ, the Word of God became flesh, revealing God's great love and compassion for mankind. All of God's words find their amen in Jesus because He is the embodiment of every whisper from the mouth of God. He is the embodiment of every whisper from the mouth of God. What can you receive from God's presence? You can receive the gift of revelation. The gift of actually knowing about God. Knowing who God is and knowing God himself secondly this morning you can receive the gift of revelation the word took on flesh and dwelt among us andres kostenberger points out that john uses an almost crude formation here in this passage the word is not said to have taken on a body or to have taken on humanity he took on flesh every crude weak and frail aspect of human beings has become a part 
of the Son of God. Now, many ancient religions have references to the gods taking on a human form. But there's a difference here and a distinct difference between Jesus and the account of those old pagan myths. Jesus didn't appear as a man. He took on flesh. God has now chosen to be with his people in a more personal way than ever before. He has tabernacled among us, literally pitched his tent in the person of Jesus Christ. God is no longer a God who resides far off, but a God who has come near and lived among us. God doesn't even live among his people as he did in the Exodus account. In Exodus, the Bible teaches us that God went before his people, leading them. That God would stop in the presence of God that was represented by a pillar of cloud and day and, and in the day and, and a pillar of fire at night. The people would see that the, the presence of God would stop. And where the presence of God stopped, they would erect the tabernacle, that tent of meeting. And there in that tabernacle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be placed. And the people would come around that and they would set up their camp around the presence of God. Notice the difference here. Jesus didn't come out somewhere and say, come find me. Instead, the Bible says he has pitched his tent among us. He is living among us. That was his choice. That was his Decision In humility, Jesus came and didn't demand that people come out to him. Instead, he went to his people, dressed in their own weaknesses, and offered himself for their sins. Jesus has come, inviting you to be with him. The masks are removed. The chasm has been crossed. In Cameron Elementary this year, all the kids have read The Wizard of Oz. And they've watched The Wizard of Oz, and everything's been Wizard of Oz all over. We have some friends who love The Wizard of Oz. Now, in The Wizard of Oz, the great Oz appears to Dorothy as a large head, and to the scarecrow as a beautiful woman, to the tin man as a great beast, and to the cowardly lion as a flaming fire. Of course, if you know anything about The Wizard of Oz, his greatness is revealed to be nothing but an elaborate farce. Oz sought to make himself great and hide his smallness. He is, as he admits, nothing more than humbug. But he doesn't want the world to know. As a matter of fact, Oz was so adamant that the whole world would view him in a certain way that he created a, 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 a city where everyone wore green goggles so that they would see the world just as he desired them to see it. We shouldn't judge Oz too strongly. Sinful humanity does just what he did. We seek to hide our weakness and our frailty. We long to be great, magnificent, beautiful, wise, and feared. But Jesus did just the opposite. Jesus is great. Let me emphasize this. Jesus is great and beautiful and magnificent, wise and feared, and yet he was willing to hide his greatness, magnificence, beauty and wisdom and take on flesh and live among us. Remember the account in the Old Testament after Moses had spent time on the mountaintop with God. The Bible says that the glory of God was so strong and the presence of God was so palpable that Moses' face sort of had God burn. I don't think that's actually the word the Bible uses, but you know, it's like sunburn, except it's, you know, God burn, or I, I guess you could call it sunburn, S O N B U R N, right? Huh? That'd be pretty terrible, but you could. Um, but the point of the matter is that he got so close to the glory of God 
that the presence of God left an indelible mark. And the Bible says that after he came down the mountain, Moses had to veil his face because the people couldn't stand to be in his, in his presence. Consider this. Jesus veiled his glory and his majesty and his power and his beauty in flesh so that we might be able to stand in his presence so that his greatness would not overwhelm us in the moment. We might experience salvation here in this life so that we may enjoy his presence in the next. Jesus came to give us a relationship with him. Jesus became weak so that we might know him. He laid down his life for his friends. And you can receive relationship with Jesus because of God's presence in Christ on earth. And finally this morning we can see the gift of rest. The gift of rest. Because of Jesus' incarnation you can rest. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. Now, why do we sleep? Now, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but I have done a little bit of reading into this. And as best I can tell, I've not been able to discover a reason scientifically for why it is that we have to regularly recharge. You understand? What, what is it about us that, that winds down? What is it about the sleep? I mean, the, science knows what happens when we sleep, but why is it necessary that we sleep? Now, I can tell you that spiritually it's necessary that we sleep so that we be reminded that we are finite, that we are not all-powerful. It is also important that we sleep because when we sleep, we lose absolute control of the world around us. We have absolutely no control. And when I lay my head down to sleep at night, I say to the Lord, Lord God, I'm going to trust that in the next eight hours while my eyes... Some of you, it's like 12, I know. But in the next eight hours while my eyes are closed, I'm going to trust, Lord God, that you're going to take care of everything. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Because of Jesus' incarnation, you can actually rest because you can know full well that God loved you enough to come live among you. But beyond that, you can know full well that God has become our ultimate Sabbath rest. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, what is this? Jesus has become the fulfillment of that law, and that law includes even the Sabbath law. We can receive rest. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and I will give you rest. In Jesus, we have the gift of rest. Are you tired? Now, there's a difference between tired and weary. A lot of you on the back end of this, this is a crazy weekend in the life of our church, right? Uh, uh, our children are, are probably getting in right now or somewhere close to right now. Uh, they haven't slept because they've been at camp. For those of you who have kids that are gone, our teenagers have been here for a lock-in all week. They haven't slept. 
the adult leaders haven't slept. Uh, some of us hosted kids at our house last night, which meant we worked all day yesterday to get everything ready for the kids to come over. Today we have worship, we have a, a funeral this afternoon, we have uh, meetings this evening, we have uh, rehearsals this evening, we have cookies this evening, and carols this evening, and, and we have all the things going on. It is crazy, and, and, and we're tired. Angela and I sat, stayed home with our two youngest kids. We saw them in Brooklyn Friday night. They wanted to stay home and watch a movie uh, and build a fire and eat pizza. And I was so happy because it was so cold and nasty and I didn't want to go anywhere. And so we cuddled up on the couches and we watched a movie and me and Angela fell out. Um, I, I mean, like, not like we, we sort of like doze. I'm, I'm talking like the kids are waking us up to go to bed, you know. Dad, are you there? Mom, what? We're tired, right? We, we put the kids to bed, and then, y'all, y'all been here before? You put the kids to bed, and then you fall back asleep on the couch. You have, to, you have to take a nap so you got enough energy to get up and go to bed. We're tired. But there's a difference between tired and weary. You understand? See, the world, just the things of life, and a rainy Friday can make you tired. And some of you are tired, but some of you are just weary. You're wore out. You see, as you consider this Jesus who came to earth, God made flesh and dwelling among us, you recognize that you've never actually encountered the rest of God. I don't mean the rest like how much more is there. I mean the rest, the peace. Be still and know that I am God. Remember that? You've heard me talk about that. Psalm chapter 40. Remember in that place, it's not that God is saying, look out at a peaceful pond and know it's, it's, it's a psalm of war. And in the middle of our striving and in our war, be still, stop. Stop your striving, he says, and know that I am God. Jesus came to give you the gift of rest. Jesus took on flesh and its weaknesses so that you might be set free. He became tired and weary so that your weariness might find relief in Him. You ready for this? Jesus came to give you rest. Rest from your labors. Rest from your sin. Rest from your pain and your hurt. He came to set you free from everything that weighs you down. So in conclusion this morning, what can you receive from God's presence? You can receive revelation, relationship, and rest. Now those words add up into a beautiful equation whose sum is nothing less than salvation in Jesus Christ. He has come to reveal Himself so that you might know your sin and know your Savior and be saved and that you might rest in Him for all of eternity. But know also that as a child of God, you need to enjoy His presence. See, I want to finish right here. I want to urge you to enjoy His presence. As I began this sermon work this week, initially I I really wanted to move in a direction to talk about your devotional nature with Jesus. But but I I just couldn't necessarily make... Let me back up. I, I, I didn't want to make the Scripture say something that wasn't there. 
And, and this, this passage of Scripture is about so much more than your devotional time with the Lord. It's about this big picture of this God who would live and dwell among us. But I don't want to leave here today without urging you to not only know the full and final revelation, relationship, and rest of God that can be found in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to urge you to enjoy the revelation Enjoy his relationship and enjoy his rest. These are not academic exercises, but experiential realities. So I want to ask you today, I want to urge you, live into the presence of God. Experience his revelation. You say, Pastor, how do I experience his revelation? His mercies are new every morning right here in His Word. Experience and enjoy God's revelation. Jump into this Word early in the mornings and discover what God has for you in it. Experience His relationship. What's it look like to pray without ceasing? What's it look like to live regularly in the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ? I lamented earlier the fact that so much of our communication is electronic, but one of the things that this electronic communication allows for us is near constant communication. Man, if you don't hear from somebody in three hours, you assume they're dead. How many hours do you go throughout the day without enjoying and experiencing the presence, the relationship with Jesus? Not an academic theological exercise, an experiential reality of God with us. Emmanuel. And oh, here at Christmas, how much should we, we be reminded around every turn, around every corner, that Jesus came and lived among us and has sent His Holy Spirit to be with us. His promise to His disciples is, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Helper. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Enjoy the presence of God. Enjoy and experience relationship. And then finally today, experience His rest. Do you know that you can experience the rest of God even in the middle of the craziness of the world? We're going to finish up this morning right back with that psalm I just mentioned. Because many times, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we buy the lie that the only way that we can actually rest is if we can just shut the whole world out and live on our own little island and enjoy rest. But, but, but the Bible says that right in the middle of the war that we can experience the rest of God. Be still and know. Right in the middle of your crazy, busy life, you can stop and know that He is God and enjoy and experience His rest. You can take five minutes away from all the crazy and just enjoy and experience the rest of God. The peace of God. The Sabbath of God. He is your perfect peace. He is your perfect rest. And He is your great hope today. Jesus didn't come to earth so that we could write great Christmas songs. He certainly didn't come to earth so we could write bad Christmas songs. But he did come to earth clothed in crude flesh so that we could experience 
His perfect divine revelation. His blessed relationship. And rest. So I ask you this morning, do you need to rest from your labors? You need to enjoy the presence of God. As we stand and we sing in just a minute, perhaps right there where you are, you just need to stop. Be still and know that He is God. Allow the presence of God to wash over you. Perhaps today for the very first time in your life, you need to experience salvation in Jesus Christ. Today you say, Craig, I've heard the revelation of God. I need that relationship. I need that rest. I'm weary. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm tired in my sin. I'm tired in my shame. I'm tired of running. I want to rest. You may be a believer here today who just says, I need rest. What does the presence of God promise you? The opportunity to experience all of those things. Would you stand with us this morning and respond as the Lord leads? Let me pray. Father God in heaven, we are so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy. God, you are our perfect peace. You are our rest, Lord God, and in you we can have relationship with the one true God. But we're so grateful that here at Christmas we can commemorate your coming and celebrate you. Father, move among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.